Listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Aloha, shipmates, and welcome aboard Sea Control. Today we're talking with Roy Dre about his November 2019 piece for Simsec, the next stand of the Tin Can Sailors, building a stand in naval force. As always, our views are our own and not representative of the U.S. Navy, the U.S. Marine Corps, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Roy, welcome. Could you tell us a little bit of your background before we go into the piece? Thank you. Happy to be here. So, Lieutenant Colonel in the Marine Corps, 19 years of service. I'm an infantry officer by trade, so uh, not a naval officer. So that's my first disclaimer about everything that I'm about to say right here. Well, I should say this. I'm not a Navy officer. Yeah, I was going to jump uh, in and correct you. I was like, you are a naval officer. <laughs> yes, uh, that's one thing that the I think the, the commandant's made pretty clear in his commandant's planning guidance. So basically where this uh, started off from was I'm currently at Training and Education Command, which is somewhat the equivalent of what the Navy is standing up with the uh, the N7 right now, but uh, our commanding general stood up a warfighting society, getting together a bunch of officers and civilians to get together a sort of quasi-think tank and start to look at different questions, even prior to the, the commandant coming out with his planning guidance, just looking at future warfare and looking at how we can use simulations to drive experimentation and things of that nature. So that's really what got us looking initially at where the Marine Corps needed to go to be effective. And and prior to the Commandant's planning guidance t uh, coming out, we were actually looking at a far north or uh, Baltic situation and then uh, decided to shift to the Pacific, as we were told to do several years ago, and finally summer. <laughs> uh, so that's really where we started looking at this. And, you know, as we started doing a, uh, a look at the adversary capabilities there and looking at our own uh, capabilities, not just the Marine Corps, but joint capabilities, it became patently obvious that, you know, what the Commandant and what the Chief of Naval Operations talk about with parity, that is definitely the case. And for us to continue to uh, just try and compete and uh, one-up our adversaries to regain our technological advantage, to regain the advantages that we've had over the past decades, probably is not the answer just based the, off of the uh, the expense and just the proliferation of technology. So that's really where this came from. And, and uh, you know, while uh, my name was on the article, there's certainly a series of articles that have been written by uh, folks all over the Marine Corps. And we've begun to bring in uh, Navy officers, uh, some foreign officers as well, to look at the same problem and, and bring their expertise to uh uh, to this question as well. The article touches on, you're down at the tactical level, then you're talking about things at the strategic level, because you're talking a little bit about force design. What sort of planning assumptions did you have to make as you set out to develop your concept? Well, the thing I'd like to say straight off is, is I mentioned uh, EABO, I mentioned uh, Loki in the article, and that, that's really where we're looking at. And uh, with the article as it's written so, right sorry, now. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you one time. Can you explain the uh, acronyms real quick? Oh, please? sure. Uh, Expeditionary Advanced Basing Operations and then uh, Latour Operations in a uh, con uh, contested environment. You know, we're, these are both concepts that the Navy and the Marine Corps have been working on for several years now. There's been uh, 
documents that have been signed by both the commandant, uh, the previous commandant, and the current uh, chief of naval operations. So the Navy and the Marine Corps are now working in parallel on these uh, these two concepts. But my feeling is, and, and the feeling of a lot of the people that I've been talking with is, is we're not there right now. Uh, we don't have the capabilities to execute those. Uh, so really, the article looks at what do we have right now uh, that we can use as a bridging uh, uh, technologically and as force design, uh, as far as force design to bridge from time now to be able to compete in the littorals to the point where we will have the capabilities that the chief of naval operations, that the secretary of the Navy and the commandant are talking about in, uh, you know, whether it's in the, the vectors that have been put out recently or uh, whether it's in uh, force design documents that are put out as well. So when I went into writing this article, uh, the assumption was we have what we have. And, and that's really where, where I looked at capabilities that we're talking about right now and capabilities that would be easily fielded in the near term. Got it. So not a problem as soon as you start to try to use hypothetical units. It's just, I don't know, I, I tend to agree with you. It's like, it's just an easier problem where it's like, okay, what do we have in our hand now? It goes back to the off-quoted Rumsfeld quote of you go to war with the army that you have, or in this case, the Navy that you have and the Marine Corps that you have. Absolutely. So the first question I have for you then is one I saw on Twitter, and it seems like every Marine understands the answer to this. It's a little less clear to me is that what is a stand-in forces? Sure. Well, we throw around a couple different terms, both in, in the Navy and the Marine Corps. We talk about stand-in forces, contact forces, blunt forces, inside forces. And I think there's nuance in talking about each one of them. So a gentleman by the name of Art Corbett, who's over at the Warfighting Lab, the United States Marine Corps, wrote an article in the uh, Marine Corps Gazette back in, I think it was February of 2019, that he really lays out what stand-in uh, forces deal with. So we're talking about, you know, when he describes stand-in forces, he's talking about a force that is in theater that's able to affect day-to-day -day competition with an adversary force. Uh, so you're, you're talking about the units that are currently deployed there, whether those marine forces, whether those that's the particular fleet that's in that area. If we're talking about the Pacific, it's the army units that are engaged in Pacific pathways. So they are, they are the units that prior to conflict, are in place that are partnering theater security operations uh, or cooperation, things of that nature. And uh, Tom Mankin from uh, the Center for Strategic Budget Analysis also talks about this as an inside force where he looks at a uh, task organized Marine uh, Corps unit that would be almost like the speed bump, if you will, to allow for a larger uh, maritime force to come in. And really, when I wrote this article, I'm looking at this as, you know, when I, when I look at these stand-in forces, I look at my own experiences being in the Pacific, deployed there as a lieutenant, again, as a, uh, a major, and looking at the opportunities that we had there and doing a lot of the joint and uh, combined exercises throughout the Philippines, throughout uh, Southeast Asia. These are all opportunities to contest that area. 
And I really think that is what we are looking at as far as these stand-in forces. We have forces that are there on the ground. They're partnering with, you know, allies, with treaty partners, and with strategic partners that are in the area. And we need to look at that as an opportunity for competition with uh, adversaries that are in the region. Thank you. That was the most comprehensive answer I've received to that question thus far. And for the listeners, we'll go pull those articles and make those available on the show notes. Right up top in the article, you address Navy's understandable reticence to risk capital ships. Seeing on the theme of kind of setting definitions or commonly understood definitions, how are you defining capital ships in this instance? Sure. Well, you know, I think it's broader than uh, just a reticence to risk capital ships. I think if you look at Traditionally, we view a capital ship historically as a battleship or a carrier, a ship that is a a center of gravity for the fleet, that if it survives, the fleet survives to fight another day. If it does not survive, then generally speaking, is a catastrophic failure on the part of the ship. So I would add SSBNs in that just from a cost standpoint, and just from the fact that we probably really don't want nuclear reactors to be on the, uh, the sea floor. But I, th- I think it extends beyond just capital ships, as I wrote in the article. Really, it's any ship. When we look at the cost of a, uh, the new uh, DDGs are at like $1.8 billion. Yes. That's a huge price tag right there. And it's a huge capability uh, that if you lose that capability, you know, of Aegis, uh, that that is a major capability that you take away for the, from the fleet. So I think as we look at competition, and if you look at what has been written by the Commandant, what has been written by the Chief Enabling Operations within the last year, we need to look at competing in a way that we do not risk those platforms, but we use those platforms to augment risk-worthy platforms, I think is the, the term that the Commandant's been using recently. Yeah, risk is one of the trickier topics as, as a force. You know, the Navy has not been really engaged by a peer since 1945. So risk is always an interesting discussion to me. And you mentioned the cost of a new destroyer. And it's not just the cost of replacing the destroyer, it's the time. So there is no bench for those destroyers. And the, exactly. the time it would take to replace one or repair one, I mean, we're seeing right now, what it's taken to repair the two vessels damaged in the collisions in summer of 2017. They're just now um, getting ready to really come back online full capability again. So it's a question of it costs us time as much as it does money. Do you have in mind what you would consider a risk-worthy platform in this case? I know we're going to get into kind of sort of the, uh, the different littoral combat groupings that you laid out here, but what would you consider a risk-worthy platform? What do you think the Commandant thinks is a risk-worthy platform here? Well, I, I won't speak for the Commandant, but when I look at... <laughs> yeah, sorry. I... <laughs> when, I, uh, when I look at this, and I know that, you know, as, as I drew out that diagram there, I have several LCSs, I have several smaller vessels, L-class ships, ESBs, really even those... I think for where we are as a, uh, a nation are not necessarily risk worthy platforms. Uh, but we look at those as platforms to launch from. So I think the risk worthy platforms, uh, we need to, we need to think about unmanned surface vessels, unmanned subsurface vessels, UAS, 
things of that nature. Those are the risk-worthy platforms. Or uh, if we're talking about man platforms, maybe we're looking at a uh, like a Mark Six or an LCU or something of that nature, a barge that we can leave on the beach. You know, if we have a barge that has some type of vertical launch system on it, that is a risk-worthy vessel that if it were targeted uh, and we lost that particular uh, craft, that's not necessarily something that we're going to salvage or recover. So I think when we talk about risk-worthy vessels, we're probably talking about something that is disposable or has a significantly smaller price tag to it than $1.8 billion and a crew of uh, several hundred sailors on it. I did a podcast with Ian Brown a couple of weeks ago talking about Fiction Week and one of the underlying assumptions from all the authors as we pondered war in the future was you know, we're not going to have the networks, but we don't believe that we're going to have all the communications net- networks that we think we're going to have. So how are all these unmanned craft going to function? It's always interesting because eventually those are probably going to be manned craft going in harm's way at some point, as much as we want to fight with our unmanned the, craft. The, the flip side of that question is uh, autonomy and looking at, uh, you know, certainly policy isn't there right now. And I think there's some reticence in uh, the use of autonomous craft and the use of artificial intelligence. But that may be an answer itself. If you program a system to be able to make decisions within a right and left lateral limit, is that something that our civilian leadership in this country would be willing to accept? Certainly something that we've been looking at within TCOM Warfighting Society is looking at how we can use AI in uh, conjunction with uh, unmanned systems. But that's something that there would need to be a significant policy change and that there's probably a lot of ethical and legal questions that go along with that as well. Yeah, and I would be surprised if you ever see that policy change come about outside of an actual wartime scenario where we really start to feel threatened. I would be surprised as well. I think, uh, unfortunately, uh, Hollywood's put a lot of movies out there about AI uh, that don't necessarily represent the, the science that's behind it. So I want to go back to some of the more the specifics of the article here. You went into detail about different task organizations that you envisioned the Marines and Navy creating. I'd like to start with the littoral combat team and go through each of these, talk about your nominal construct and sort of the, what underpins those constructs. Sure. So I look at the littoral combat team as, you know, what really is that organization that would be embarked aboard shipping? That could be, you know, put aboard or put on to, uh, on the shore. So I look at that littoral combat team as a mix. It's, it really needs to be a joint force because some of the capabilities that I believe we need as far as fires and anti-aircraft capabilities don't exist currently within the Marine Corps, but they do exist within the joint force. And then there's other capabilities as far as surface lift that don't exist within the Marine Corps, but do exist within Naval Expeditionary Combatant Command. So I look at it, you know, really being scalable, but, you know, based around a Marine uh, infantry company, merely because that gets our foot in the door uh, very often with a lot of our host nations in uh, the Asia-Pacific region to be able to conduct exercises. And I look at those exercises 
as being a part of contesting, you know, the littoral. But again, you know, a littoral combat team needs to be multi-domain. It needs to be able to ha- uh, be able to control aircraft. It needs to be able to sustain itself. So as you start to look at all those different warfighting functions and all the domains that it needs to be able to operate in, I think you very quickly realize, or at least I did, that this is becoming a much larger signature, whether it's uh, physical signature or electromagnetic. And, uh, you know, after having written the article, came to the conclusion that really we need to be looking at the joint force and at joint capabilities and can't look at one littoral combat team being able to solve all of its problems. It's, it has to be able to reach back to the joint force, to reach back to the GIFMIC for support. So let me divert then from sort of what we discussed a little bit here, because you brought up a really interesting point is like the joint force and the capabilities you're going to reach back for. What are you talking about reaching back? It's like you said you learned this post article. So Sure. So I, I was invited to actually go down to Fort Eustis, where the Army has its Future Force Command, and, and to talk about these same concepts. They're looking at a lot of the same problems that the Navy and the Marine Corps has. And as they were talking about it, I came to the realization that they're looking at the problem the same way we are, as if Goldwater Nichols never happened. Uh, <laughs> so they're looking at trying to solve this thing as if it's, just the army out there. And, I, and you know, it, it made me laugh because the Marine Corps is trying to solve this as if the Marine Corps is the only one dealing with this problem. Uh, and we're talking about proliferation of uh, satellites and synthetic aperture radar with our adversary forces. And I begin to think, well, you know, the Air Force has capabilities to deal with things of that nature. And we have, uh, you know, cyber command that can deal with these issues. And so I, I think, you know, if we look at, look at this problem in that sense, that it is a joint problem and that a littoral combat group does not need to have every single capability to be able to engage the adversary in every single domain. It really needs to be able to provide specific functions to allow the fleet to maneuver within the littorals. And if we look at those specific functions that the uh, Joint Force Maritime Component Commander or the te- uh, Naval Task Force Commander requires, I think we can come up with a more reasonable sized organization from a physical and electro- electromagnetic uh, standpoint. So back to the different force groupings that you've laid out here, um, the littoral combat group, how does that differ from the littoral combat so I look at the team being that that ground force or being, you know, we, we looked at it as, as primarily a, a Marine Corps force with some Army capabilities and Navy capabilities that were bolted onto it. The littoral combat group, I look at that as encompassing uh, naval surface uh, vessels. You know, in the diagram in the article, I laid out a couple different hull forms that uh, we can look at using there. And I looked at the littoral combat group having similar capabilities uh, that you would see with an amphibious ready group and an expeditionary strike group, but being able to do it with fewer ships, just because we're looking at a much smaller force being embarked on that shipping. And then the last grouping was the littoral strike squadron. You know, we were looking at peeling away those uh, LCS ships. 
uh, away from there and looking at the the different um, uh, mission modules that you can put in those uh, LCS uh, ships. So normally when you look at an expeditionary strike group, you're talking about, you know, a crew des capability being associated with that or a subsurface capability being uh, associated with that. But are we necessarily willing to peel those away from a carrier strike group for this uh, this type of mission? So we looked at the LCSs and the potential that is there with some of the uh, the modules as being the nucleus for that littoral strike group. You've already mentioned the Pacific, so I think we have a fairly good idea of where these groups would be operating, but how do you envision sustaining them in a contested environment? I think one of the capabilities that, uh, or one of the things that we're going to need to work on, and this is, you know, comes down to this problem being a whole or government uh, issue, is we'll need to work through defense attaches to set up contracting, to set up uh, logistics facilities, things of that nature. The problem with that is logistics facilities, whether it's fuel sites or whether it's uh, ports, those are all targets and they're all things that are going to be targeted in, uh, you know, in a conflict. So if we're looking at organizations being smaller signature, you know, my personal view is we need to look at alternative fuels, alternative forms of energy. We need to be looking at the ability of a combat service support element to be able to generate its own repair parts. Uh, they're looking at the advances in 3D printing. And while we do have an ESB that's associated with the uh, littoral combat groups, as I, I kind of drew them out there, we're looking at, okay, the connectors. What do we need there? Because the LCUs, even the LCU 2000, really doesn't meet the speed or the signature or the survivability that I think we would need in this type of environment. So I think you're looking at some sort of autonomous logistics variant of a, uh, a surface craft that's an unmanned vehicle, something that is inexpensive, that can push from uh, uh, the off offshore from the littoral combat group towards wherever the team is currently deployed to. If it is recovered, great. If it's not recovered, then we're still able to uh, continue with operations. But I, I think that's that's really the long pole in the tent here, as you call out right there, is number one, the sustainability and the fact that we as a military just burn through petroleum and burn through electricity at the uh, the cyclic rate, and it, it's it's a uh, huge problem. I'll talk a little bit about your choice on the title here too. Like next out of the tin can sailors, obviously you're playing off last stand of the tin can sailors. It's an extremely evocative word choice. Why did you go that route? I think it's a great book, and I think it. I talk about at the beginning of, of the article our reticence to risk ships, and I think if. We, we need to be serious about what the next fight could possibly entail, that it's going to involve sacrifice. And I think we need to be prepared for that because technologically, we're not where we need to be. You know, there's certainly been improvements on the size of the force uh, with regard to the, uh, the number of ships that we have. But we don't have that great of an advantage over a lot of the adversary forces that we do. Now, the areas that we do have advantages in are training and in our ability to command and control 
our ability to uh, partner with other nations and to bring them on board as a uh, part of a uh, maritime force. But I looked at at that, um, number one, because it's a great book, and number two, because it shows what can be done with a well-trained and well-led force against a, uh, a superior force. And when you look at that book and you look at the pocket uh, destroyers and the escort carriers that were involved in that fight, significantly uh, smaller capability, but based off of their the training of those crews, the leadership of those combat groups, and deception was a huge part of it. They were able to defeat a significantly more capable naval force there in in those uh, those very same waters. So really, you know, what I'm looking at is not to say that I look at these littoral combat groups as being sacrificed or anything of that nature. I look at them more as being a uh, covering force. In the Marine Corps, we talk about you know, a, a screen force, a guard force, a covering force, and, and the different capabilities that those units need to be able to have to uh, accomplish those missions. So I look at this being a maritime covering force that's able to contest the littorals prior to, prior to conflict. They're able to partner in our allies and our partner nations' uh, exclusive economic zones, and they're able to change the calculus. Uh, right now, adversary forces, whether it's the Arctic or whether it's the South China Sea, pretty much have the, at least as you would read it in the uh, in the media, have the run of the uh, the block in those areas. And uh, if we were to, I think, look at alternate ways to compete in that area with our partners side by side, I think that's what we're looking at. And and this covering force being in place and being able to set conditions for a larger naval task force to, to uh, move into that area. Well, thank you, Roy. The article, again, was Next Stand of the Tin Can Sailors, Building a Standing Naval Force. That and Roy's other work can be found on the SimSec website. We'll link to it in our show notes. Uh, Roy, where else can we find you online? Well, you can also find us, if you go to the Marine Corps uh, University Foundation website, you can, uh, if you maneuver through there, you can look for the uh, TCOM Warfighting uh, society. That's where we do a lot of our uh, simulations. There's a lot of other uh, articles that have been written by both marine personnel and uh, naval personnel, building on the work that I've done here and uh, building on a lot of the work of Marine Corps University as well. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Roy. And for our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next week. I want to tell the See?